the public feels they don't know enough about how animals are actually raised to be able to judge it, being Canadian. And, you know, I'm sorry, I don't know enough to be able to really answer that question is more or less the response. But you could rank. I did a lot of comparative work with Europe and the U.S., and you can you can see that there's a different feeling around some of these issues in different countries. And I think that's important to know. Hello, everyone. My name is John Patience, and it's my uh, honor and pleasure to be hosting this podcast. It's the first for me in the series with SwineNet Canada. Swine Veterinary Partners is comprised of four clinics across Canada that specialize in swine health, management, research, and development. Our nutrition group includes four companies, Nutrition Athena, Shakespeare Mill, Farmhouse, and Nutrition Partners, which serve swine producers all across Canada. And it's my very great pleasure to have as my first guest, Dr. Ellen Goddard from the University of Alberta. Um, Hello, Dr. Goddard. Hi, nice to be here. And uh, before we get started, could you uh, give us a bit of an introduction to your background and then uh, a little bit about the work you're involved in now at the University of Alberta and various other organizations you're a part of, please. Okay. So I'm an agricultural economist who moved into agriculture when I was studying at the University of Guelph uh, without coming from a farm. So I've always had a bit of an inclination to look at the policy consumer public side of agriculture, although I've done quite a bit of work with farmers um, over the years as well. I've I did a undergraduate and master's degree at the University of Guelph and a PhD in Australia um, at La Trobe University in Melbourne. And ever since then, I've been an academic, so steadily teaching, hopefully getting enough publications out, supervising lots of grad students, and engaging with uh, industry and policymakers as, as warranted without sticking my nose in places I didn't need it to have it. I I actually have been doing a lot of research over the past eight or nine years um, with Genome Canada projects, livestock-based Genome Canada projects, looking at um, the use of different types of genetic technologies to um, breed in disease resilience into pigs and dairy cattle, um, but also looking at feed efficiency, um, in the case of beef cattle, reduced methane emissions, and keeping away generally from the idea of genetic modification, but looking at the use of genomic information for selective breeding, but also some of the newer technologies like gene editing, potentially. Great. Very good. Well, thank you very much for that. Um, you're, uh, you're being a little modest in terms of your, uh, your experience and background and activities. I know that you're uh, a distinguished fellow at the Canadian Agri-Food Policy Institute. Um, you're past president of the Canadian Agriculture Economics Society, and you're former cooperative chair in agriculture marketing and business. So you bring a lot of experience uh, to this podcast. So I'm even more delighted to be a part of this and hear what you have to say on the subject of new technologies and how that is uh, 
received uh, by the consumer, how that might affect their decisions. And uh, so let's let's get going on that. And perhaps you can introduce the subject as you as you see it in terms of the new technologies and consumer reaction to those technologies. Okay, I'll tell you a little bit of a story. Um, as you may know, Genome Canada projects all have a required social science component. It's called GELS, not that that matters, stands for Genetics, Ethics, Economics, Law, and Society, Environment in there too. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so my colleagues came to me and said, we're looking for somebody to do GELS for our first project that we're going to submit on on pigs and disease resilience. And I said, oh, I'd be delighted. And I could think of lots of research questions that were pertinent. And I spent my time and I wrote a proposal, not very long proposal, that said, uh, we need to look at how the public is going to accept this. And every one of the scientists on the project, there was probably about 12 of them said, why? <laughs> why would we need to look at that? Yeah. And yeah. I was dumbfounded and they said, take all that out. You know, all we're talking about is selective breeding. It's not an issue for the public. So I took it all out. And then you go through all these stages of review process with the local yeah. genome office and the national genome office before you get to the final um, stages of being examined. And at every stage, they said, where's all the stuff about the public things? <laughs> so I had to put it all yeah. back in. And my science colleagues were tremendously supportive. They okay. admittedly were a little bit dubious about whether the public would have strong opinions. Um, but when the research came back and showed that the public had actually relatively informed questions that um, sh made them a little bit dubious about some applications of technology, then the scientists all became very interested. And I was delighted with that sort of interaction because I felt like it, perhaps it's important. And a lot of it has to do with what applications you're looking at. In some cases, the public is concerned differently about cattle than they are about chickens or pigs or whatever. And some of that uh, spills over into particular applications of technology. And um, there's... Uh, a lot of people think there aren't very significant animal welfare concerns held by the public around the livestock products they eat. And that is really not true, although the public feels they don't know enough about how animals are actually raised to be able to judge it, being Canadian. And, you know, I'm sorry, I don't know enough to be able to really answer that question is more or less the response. But you could rank. I did a lot of comparative work with Europe and the U.S., and you can you can see that there's a different feeling around some of these issues in different countries. And I think that's important to know. Yeah. And certainly the um, pig breeding companies who were part of our Genome Canada projects were pretty interested in the results and could think of other applications. Um, if no. the idea of castrating pigs is bad, what does the public think about chemical castration, for example, which I hadn't thought of doing research on. And right. um, it turned out the public didn't really think that was a significant improvement. 
Um, um, and and so how are you going to deal with that issue? What options does the public really want us to look at in terms of dealing with that issue? And the best part about the research was finding out that if you could explain that there was a sensible reason for doing things, a, a reason that might be good for animals, that might be good for humans interacting with the animals, might be good for the public eating the products of the animals, the public was more than willing to go with you and entertain the notion of um, that being adopted in the industry. And anyway, really, um, really interesting research as it came out with more and more details about the applications of technology. Wow, that's uh, I find that really fascinating. I think all of us in science and certainly most of us in industry are interested in how the consumer perceives our product and production and so on. I'm intrigued that you're telling me that uh, that some respondents to your your uh, survey uh, expressed the opinion that they didn't feel they really knew enough to have an opinion on that particular subject, but they were interested. And if you don't mind, Dr. Goddard, if you could um, explain to me and to our audience today just a little bit about the, the the procedures that you use in order to get a sense of the consumer's feelings about various topics as it relates to food. I think many of us, we see survey results, but we really don't understand how they're carried out, and we don't understand how they're interpreted by people like you who are professionals in that field. Okie dokie. So, uh, I may say the word survey, but I don't want you to think that um, a survey and descriptive statistics on the questions asked in the survey is sort of uh, where I go. But the whole process of doing research on things like um, the use of a technology which is not currently being used and is not available in the marketplace requires us to ask questions of people about what they think they might do um, if that product was available, if it was labeled, if it was something they could find out um, was accessible in the marketplace. Um, to do that, you have to do a lot of pre-testing. Um, students at the University of Alberta that came from pig farms, for example, <laughs> spent a lot of time answering surveys and saying, I think that's a really dumb question to me, um, uh, which was very helpful in, in getting better informed survey questions. The last thing you want to do is ask questions that may lead somebody in industry to think you didn't know what you were asking about when um, you did the research. So a lot of background research, a lot of bothering my science colleagues and their grad students and postdocs about um, exactly what was going on and what was being done so I could explain it properly. And then a lot of pretesting. And then often we would use online uh, surveys of about 2,000 um, people in Canada so that we would get a really good um representation of the population across age groups, income groups, also across where they live, uh, how how they interact with farms, if at all. Um, all of that kind of information is really important to get a, a, a broad-based um, basis for the kind of results. 
Then we do a variety of things in those surveys that are experimentally designed. So with pictures of products that might be available in the grocery store sometime in the future, we could put different types of labels on those pictures. I spend a lot of time with graphic designers coming up with um, how products might look in the future, what they might say. And then you have a proper experimental design at a variety of prices with a varying combinations of attributes. Like this is pork chops that were raised on a Canadian family farm um, that grayed out at this. And it, you know, uh, the cooking instructions would be this. And it turns out that the farmer did or did not use antibiotics in the production of this pork chop. They did or did not use um, genomic selection in the breeding of the pigs that produced this pork chop, et cetera, et cetera. And then people can make trade-offs. Well, you know, the fact that they didn't use antibiotics is good for me, but the fact that they used um, a genomic technology, I'm not so comfortable with. And you start to unpack the relative importance of the different attributes. Um, but we also do a lot of background questions in those. There's um, psychologists have developed scales to measure people's attitudes towards animal welfare, for example, and the environment and a disease resilience. And we use some of those um, as as trying to unpack people's fundamental attitudes. Right now, my grad students are working on things called moral foundations. Um, how how much do you believe that you should uh, treat other people like yourself or would you treat other people in a different way, in a different circumstance, just to get at fundamental beliefs um, to try and unpack those as a determinant of how people make food choices, how they make lifestyle choices, how they make job choices. Um, all of which will, may contribute to um, ultimately their demand for food. Okay, okay. very interesting. So it, it's, it, we also pretest with people in the room. We, we sometimes work with small groups who do some of the survey questions and then argue with us about whether they think they made sense or not. Which so we know that what we're asking is sort of valid in some right. way. Yeah. I think one of the questions that I hear when I'm at industry meetings regarding uh, consumer surveys or other uh, surveys of um, how people feel about various aspects of society today, et cetera, is how, is there a difference between what somebody will say in a, a survey, your definition of a survey, not you know, so we'll broaden it out, and actually their actions when they make a purchasing decision. Is there a, a, a mechanism that you can test to say, yes, they said they would do this, and we know they would do that, or how 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 do you interpret that that gap? Um, there are some kinds of bias um, associated with that. We call it hypothetical bias that do imply that people will make um, uh, statements and responses in a survey um, in a way that does not represent what they actually do. So there's a couple of things about that. We're well aware of that possibility. 
there are uh, ways you can ask them if they would do it. You could ask them how certain they are about their answers, for example. You can also ask them, um, and this came from my colleagues on the environmental side, something called consequentiality. Do they think that their answers on the survey are going to be important to the industry, to government policymakers? And if they say no, then you're a little bit more suspicious about um, whether their answers. Uh, do they think that their personal response will contribute in a positive way towards forming policy, or do they think they're just one item in a in a big um, morass of data that nobody's ever going to see their answers? So we ask those questions, and we test the responses against those questions. There are simple questions. Um, you ask people to find out if they're paying attention when they're doing the survey, and so you say things like, uh, tell me the answer is five. <laughs> and if they put down 10, okay, they're not paying that much attention. attention. Right. So there, there's a, a variety of ways that we do quite skillful testing. I personally think one survey doesn't tell you anything. If you get responses that make some kind of sense over time to repeated mm. surveys in maybe slightly different questions, but in a similar context, then you start to feel that you're having more robust responses. And if you can find a way to do it in an actual experiment, so make wow. up a mock yeah. grocery store and monitor. Yeah. Yeah. I, unfortunately, grocery stores don't like us mucking around with prices. <laughs> Um, in their stores. So we can't just yep. march up to the local um, grocery store and say, okay, we're going to play around with your prices for pork and the labels on the pork, and we're going to track why using the loyalty cards what people actually buy. The grocery stores are like, no way, no way. <laughs> yeah. um, so yeah. we have to yeah. find ways to do experiments. I had a great project um, near the beginning of this time where we had um, – a great farmer raising uh, pigs outdoors as much as you can in Alberta because there are some periods where it's not healthy for the pigs to be outdoors. But raising pigs outdoors, and we had some other conventional pig producers that were producing pigs really at the top end and had put together a slaughter plant for, you know, 20 of the producers that were producing the same quality of pigs. And we asked him if he would also slaughter the pigs from this outdoor guy, and we could compare everything about the pigs. So he said yes, uh, under duress, I guess, in the end, but he did. And they brought the pigs in, and so the pigs were all graded. We knew exactly what the grades of each of the pigs were. Um, we, the pigs were all slaughtered and we took, um, samples of all of the pigs, some of his conventional ones, some of the raised outdoor ones. My meat science colleague did all the meat quality tests on those pigs. We also genomically, um, tested all the pigs. So we had the genomic information and laboriously, my grad students and some of the other grad students on the project packaged up the pork chops and we brought them into a food sensory testing place. And we did cook some of the pork chops and do sensory testing on them. But we also showed 
people what the pork chops would have looked like. I laboriously made labels, you know, that were identical to the required labels and a little bit of information on how the pigs were raised. And we let people go around looking at them to see, would you buy package A or B or this A or B or whatever? And oh my goodness, it was a lot of work. I remember running around trying to buy the diapers that appear in the white um, fresh meat tray. We didn't have any. And then we realized there was going to be all this runny stuff all over the package. It wouldn't look like it did in the grocery store. And then saran wrapping them all and putting the labels on. Boy, it was a lot of work. Um, so in the end, we could look at the value for from the consumer perspective, from the experiment, and use the things like where the pigs came from, what their grade was, what their meat quality indicators were, and ultimately the genomic information to see if it predicted um, anything to do with consumer choice. And all of those things were important in the consumer choice uh, in the ultimate decision they made, even though the consumer didn't know. Like they didn't know it came from a grade A pig versus a grade B pig, for example. But if we put that information in the model, we could tell that their choices were actually being influenced by the quality grades on the pigs, as well as the other inf the other credence attributes around have, knowing how the pigs were raised and that sort of thing. It, it was a great project, <laughs> just a terrific project. And the scientists said, Again, they were a bit puzzled why this was the objective of the project, but I wanted to show them that um, that the consumer choice is, they may not know how to describe the technical aspects. They certainly wouldn't know what sheer force was, for example. But how they were making the choice of this pork chop versus that pork chop was actually being influenced. And of course, you find the obvious thing like little bits of differences in marbling make a difference to their choices and those kind of things. But anyway, it was fascinating. So the scientists became much more believers in the fact that consumer choice was important. It's really expensive to do actual experiments with meat. And, and in the end, I couldn't sell them the meat because I worried about the length of time it sat out on the counter while people went around and that sort of thing. But it was a great project. And boy, the people were engaged. They loved it. Yeah, very good and, and very interesting. Um, with respect to consumers' reaction to various things that you're looking at, and let's just restrict it to technology right now. Um, uh, are there differences. You've already alluded to the fact that there are differences between Europe and Canada, uh, the United States, etc. But within Canada, are there regional differences? Are there differences due to urban versus rural um, residents? Is there, are there differences due to age uh, of the respondent? Is there, are there differences due to the to the gender of the respondent uh, and whatever else you might be looking at, education level or what, whatever. Are, are, can you determine that somebody in Toronto might respond to your questionnaire differently than somebody who's located in uh, 
Red Deer or Lethbridge or um, Lloyd Minster? We can. Um, I I worry that um, even with a sample of 2,000, we may end up with more people in that southern part of Ontario than some other geographies in the country just because of um, population dynamics. Um, just as an aside, I sometimes ask the um, for more um, panelists from places like Alberta and Saskatchewan than their population base would suggest uh, is necessary for a survey just to cover that off. Um, there are definitely differences in terms of age. Um, older people, um, even younger than me, <laughs> um, people are are quite comfortable with the safety of our food supply and and the practice the ha- patterns they've developed about around eating over the past and they are um more interested in things related to health as you can imagine so if uh, one of the things i was looking at was added carnosine in pigs which has the benefit of um, helping aging, not the looking like a 20-year-old, but more uh, physiological um, benefits. And um, older people thought that was much more interesting than some younger people thought. Um, so that was that was kind of interesting. But they also are pretty wedded to meat eating in general. For an example, the younger people are more willing to do more substitutions in their diet, perhaps for plant-based products or ultimately for cell-based products. Um, So there are definitely differences in age. By the same token, by the way, the older people are generally eating less on their plate (laughs) at a time than younger people are. So that also has interesting ramifications. Um, Attitudes toward technology are are kind of interesting there is definitely um on the part of younger people and i'm not quite sure where this breaks off say younger than 40 maybe younger than 35 that sort of age group is really um got heightened interest in the ethics of food production which could relate to animal welfare but also relates to how People are treated in the supply chain. Those things are important. They're more willing to make substitutions, as I said. And in general, um, they're less suspicious about technology, but they somehow have the same belief that food is a natural thing. And so if you're just going to say the word technology and food production, that doesn't resonate as positively. If you say right. yeah. we're doing X and Y for good reasons because it's beneficial to pigs, it's beneficial to people who care for pigs, it's beneficial to consumers, then then it's a much easier sell. Um, but a little bit like we we like food to be natural, however it, natural is defined. Um, I will also say that having some experience with the farm makes you um, obviously more knowledgeable about um, farm-level production, maybe not what goes on at the processing level, but certainly at the farm level. And in general, you're 
much more supportive of farmers and you're much more supportive of the idea that farmers know best how to take care of their animals in this case. Um, It's generally the people who have almost no connection with farming, apart from going for a Sunday drive and thinking the farms look pretty beside the road. Um, they, They are willing to say... I don't want to judge farmers for how they treat animals because I simply don't know. Which, in some senses, I find more positive than I believe all farmers treat their animals badly, um, which I don't like as an attitude yeah. because it's it's an opinion, I think, um, formed on inadequate knowledge. Um, you can tell that even from students, by the way. Sometimes students come back to me and say, you know, those farmers really love their beef cattle. And I say, yes, I'm pretty <laughs> sure that's why they have cows and raise <laughs> yeah. calves, because they love the animals. And the students say, but I had no idea. Um, yeah. And it changes how you view things. But you, you can definitely pick that up in the people that have a closer connection some way. Either they have worked on the farm, their kids have worked on the farm, you know, they have a brother working on the farm, some kind of connection yep. with farming. So you you can definitely see variations in the attitudes. And by the way, females are more interested in labeling. They're more interested in information about nutrients, around um, nutrition. Um, males in general, and this is really in general, um, not so interested in some of those things and certainly more equivocal about technology. If it's there, it's there. If it's not there, it's not there. I generally buy what I like to look at in the store kind of attitude. Females are, I want to know why it's there and I want to know what is there underneath the label, if you like. That's very, I find that really interesting. And I'm 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 going to go off on just a little bit of a tangent. And if you're not comfortable going there, find Doctor Goddard because we got lots of other things to talk about, and we've only got ten minutes left. Okay, <laughs> I'm so, sorry, I talked too much. <laughs> no, 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 no. This has been excellent. This is absolutely excellent. But you made the comment that you have seen in in your studies that some people will say, well, if I know why a technology is being used, uh, that it is beneficial to the well-being of the animal, it's beneficial to the health of the animal, it's beneficial to the quality of the pork or to the consumer or to the people working with the animals. Does that give us in in the industry insight into how we should be communicating with people about our industry and about our products, especially when those people don't have much background in farming and agriculture? I I absolutely uh, think that that's absolutely essential. And I say it every time I speak. And indirectly, a lot of my research has focused on trust and who we trust in the industry to do the right thing and who we trust for information. And I will, farmers are at the top of that heap. Unfortunately, farmers have kind of a full-time job already. But this communication business coming from farmers is worth its weight in gold in terms of um, informing the public about things. As, you know, farmers are at the top, we have a 
a bit of a drop and then there's government uh, responsibility for the safety and security yeah. of the food system that most people trust scientists then and then a long gap to the other players in the supply chain um, like the retailers and the processors and you can see that with how Loblaws is being um, addressed at the moment in terms of uh, pricing uh, we're uh, very yep, suspicious yep. around the agendas of some other players um, I have opinions about that too but I won't tell you what those are but um yeah. But farmers are very highly trusted. And if farmers say, I need this, they can say they need it um, just to make ends meet. Yep. And that the public would accept that. They can say, I need it because my animals need it. The environmental health of my farm needs it. Um, and the public will be right supportive with them. Um, so that is really important. And that trust in farmers does not change across time. Um, I found it consistently for the past 25 years, almost the same proportion of the population. And if farmers tell you a technology is needed, then, um, then it's going to be, have much higher acceptance. Where we get the time to have those interactions and where farmers have the time to be able to, make those communication efforts. I really applaud the farmers that spend time on social media endlessly um, talking to people because in, there are people that will attack them. There are yeah. people who would rather we don't have livestock raised for food production. The majority of Canadians, by the way, accept that raising livestock for food production is a legitimate thing. The same people would say hunting for food is a legitimate activity. They're a little bit less supportive of the idea of hunting just for sport and leaving the carcass to be dealt with by ah. somebody else. Um, they're, you know, not so excited about using animals for research in labs. So, you know, they can, they evaluate these things and they think through these things and don't tell them that we test for um, makeup on animals. I mean, they yeah. really have yeah. very little tolerance for that sort for of that. thing anymore. Yeah. So they can make those judgments. But if farmers can explain why we do things, then it comes with a huge amount of weight. In our last few minutes, Dr. Goddard, I'd like you to, because we've talked about the survey side of things and perceptions and, and viewpoints and sort of you've consolidated a lot of your studies into a very brief conversation, and, and I have found it very, very interesting. But now can we turn over to some of the, uh, turn our attention to some of the technologies? You mentioned at the beginning of the show uh, the use of genomics uh, to improve disease resistance. Um, I think you mentioned, using different, uh, different words, uh, the CRISPR technology um, and um, uh, the, you've, Maybe in some of your work, you've looked at, at vaccination, the role of vaccination and all this. Just in the last few minutes, can you just talk about those technologies and how you perceive them or how you think consumers perceive them now? And is the direction uh, favorable to those technologies or is there work that needs to be done in order to gain acceptance of those technologies? 
I do think that in general, um, people are becoming more knowledgeable about the use of these technologies. And I think in general, if the reasons are good and the reasons make sense to the public, they will accept it. I was intrigued um, when I started the research, people said, don't use the word genomics anywhere in what you talk to the public about because they will identify that as genetic modification. And I've always been very careful to say there are different definitions and what's your level of knowledge and all of this sort of stuff. And you also have to remember that these things are also being applied to humans in some sense. So you have to say, I'm talking about an application to livestock. I'm not talking about an application to humans. Um, what, what is really important is a number of things. The species that is being dealt with is important when you deal with livestock. So people have different feelings about um, gene editing insects than they do gene editing chickens or they do gene editing cattle, for example. Um, what you what trait you're looking for is um, also causes some um, interest on the part of the public, and if they can see that it's something that will benefit animals, will benefit caregivers, will will ultimately benefit consumers, they're far more accepting of the use of technology than if they think it's something that we're doing um, just to improve. Um, I mean, I don't want to say productivity because productivity is important, but if, if they see it as purely a commercial improvement, um, for some agent in the um, supply chain, then they're less interested in the use of the technology, which is not to say, by the way, they don't think farmers should make a profit. They do. They like the idea of farmers um, continuing to farm. Yep. But when I looked at gene editing or the use of CRISPR technology, two of the current applications were um, let's uh, get rid of horns on dairy cattle. And as you must know, we could have got rid of horns and dairy cattle from breeding a long time ago, but there was a trade-off between milk yield and getting rid of horns and dairy cattle that discouraged the dairy industry from doing that, um, even though it was largely adopted in the beef industry. Um, so that was one application. Another application was... Um, using CRISPR or gene editing to remove susceptibility to a particular disease. And that has been done in pigs. <laughs> and uh, so I asked people, I said, we can do this. Do you want us to do this using conventional breeding and it'll probably take us 25 years? Or do you want us to use it, do it using selective breeding and it'll probably take us 10 years? And or do you want us to do it with gene editing and it'll be 100% heritable and we can do it in two years? And um, most people were less familiar with gene editing, so there was caution. But if it came down to it, getting rid of a disease in the pigs was something it would be acceptable for. Not so much on the idea of getting rid of the horns in the dairy cattle. And a lot of scientists said, Getting rid of the horns using gene editing is way better than burning off the buds of the horns when the calves are born. This is an animal welfare improving thing. It's not quite how the public sees it. 
because the public would like to believe that cows could be out there on green pastures with white picket fences. And in that case, the horns would be less important. So they don't define animal welfare exactly the same way we do uh, in the industry. And they saw that as a more peripheral use of a technology and somewhat less acceptable than getting rid of the disease in pigs, which, by the way, they saw as important for pig welfare as well as for people welfare. Okay, Great. I'm afraid we're running out of time. This has been very, very interesting. And I ask you to just wrap up with what would be the one or two most important take-home messages you would like to leave with our audience um, before we say goodbye uh, today. One of the most important things is don't forget there's a public out there. And people in the industry often talk about consumers, and they think consumers equate to the public. Remember that sometimes the public is not a consumer. You could have ardent um, NGO groups that do not want um, to eat meat, for example, who could be far more influential in policy that could affect technologies being invested in, public policies around regulation. So it's the public at large. You have to talk to everybody, not just the people who are already consuming your product, um, is I think really important to remember. So I always talk about the public as opposed to consumers. But the other thing is that we have heightened awareness around disease right now. There's there's no way that COVID has not changed our perception of disease and the animal-human interactions around disease and the use of things like vaccination. So we better be completely transparent as an industry about what we do with our livestock and the benefits of what we do with our livestock. We need to be in the debate around the benefits of vaccination, even if we're applying it to livestock. Uh, We can't avoid it now that um, vaccination is so controversial in terms of people. Right. Great. Well, I hate to bring this to a close because you've made some very, very interesting points and I think introduced many of us to some ideas and information that we didn't have previously. So, uh, Dr. Goddard, thank you so very much for your time today. Uh, We really appreciate that. And uh, with that, I'll say, um, have a good rest of your day. And to our audience, say, I really hope that you have enjoyed this podcast from Swine IT Canada. Thank you very much.